0: Well, it's a joy and a privilege to be back with you. Um, it was really exciting to, to be a part of your particularization service. And so uh, in the, we've had a, a pretty tumultuous spring at our church in the Woodlands uh, the, during the freeze in February, our building flooded. Um, and we've been meeting at another church in the Woodlands on Saturday nights, um, which is so weird uh, to, to meet on Saturday nights. But what it does is it gives me the opportunity to come and, and be with y'all on Sunday, and I don't even have to miss church. Um, so we had church last night, and I get to come be with y'all and give Blake a break and um, just get to share God's Word with you. I, I think Blake's probably too charitable, um, setting the bar pretty high. I think if you haven't heard me before, I'm not that great. Um, <laughs> my job is to bring Jesus before you, and I hope we will make much of him uh, so um, I've been friends with Blake for a long time, and I'm just really excited to get to be with here with you today. Uh, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 31 uh, this morning. It's a story that if you've been around church much at all, um, it's a story that probably would be very familiar to you. It's uh, the rich young ruler. And so in this passage, a young man comes to Jesus and he's very sincerely asked, uh, "Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's just a great question that all, Um, people in the church, all believers, would really be excited to have someone come ask you. But as we'll see here, uh, Jesus doesn't really directly answer the man's question. Um, And some of us, when we read this, we're just left puzzled and confused. You know, Jesus, this guy is sincere. Why don't you just tell him? But as we'll see, Jesus tries to go after this man's heart, and that's where we're really headed this morning. Um, As we come to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31 today, I want you to be thinking about this question. Where is your heart in relationship to Jesus? What do you really love and desire most? So please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 10 verse 17 to 31. Hear the word of our Lord. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or Or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you that you've given us your word to instruct us, to challenge us, to transform us. We pray that by your spirit you would go before us and in us this morning that we might come into contact with the Jesus as he is presented in the scriptures. We thank you that you love us and you are good, that you alone are good, and that you call us to yourself, that you are patient and gracious with us that you do not despise us or reject us, that you draw us near, that you drive us to yourself. We pray that as we come into contact with you this morning, that we would not go away sad, that we would come away from this place joyful, transformed, equipped with your gospel, equipped with your Holy Spirit, that we might go out and love and serve those around us and follow you all of our days. It's in Christ's name we come before you. Amen. Well, in the 1979 Russian film, Stalker, probably sure everyone has seen it in this room, um, it tells the story of these three men who are on a journey. Uh, their names are Professor, Ryder, like, like Ryder, not like on a horse, Ryder, um, and, and their guide, Stalker. And Stalker is leading these men to the zone. Um, and specifically to the room within the zone. Uh, The room, he's told them, it's this kind of miraculous phenomenon where upon entering into it, they're going to be granted their heart's deepest desires. In the room, you get exactly what you want. You get the thing that you desire most in the whole world. And when they finally get there, when they reach the place where they're about to enter and get their most cherished desires, they hesitate. They're afraid to step into the room because it dawns on them, what if I don't want what I really think I do? The room really, it it really does reveal all. So what you get is not what you think you wish most for. It's the thing that your heart most deeply wishes for. So they're confronted with this disturbing reality that maybe they don't want what they think they really do want. You know, what if the desires of their heart, what if their deepest longings are not the ones that they've chosen for themselves? One person writes about the, the movie and says this, not many people can confront the truth about themselves. I think you and I can identify with that this morning. If I were to ask you, if you were a follower of Jesus, you know what you really want, what do you ultimately love? Um, you know the right answer. We know the Sunday school answer to give. Uh, we know what we ought to say, but would you feel confident stepping into the room this morning? Um, The insight that the room gives us is that our deepest desires are really shown in our daily lives, in our habits. Not necessarily in what we say we think we want or what we even think that we want. And that really does bring us to our text this morning in Mark chapter 10. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks this amazing question for what he thinks he really wants. Eternal life. But Jesus, through this gracious Through this generous conversation, he reveals the man's true love, his deepest desires, and what we see is they don't line up with Jesus and his kingdom at all. So this morning, what do you love? What do you really, really want? What do you cherish most? We're just going to ask three questions of our text this morning uh, to help us see into our hearts and how we engage the world around us. So first, what do we learn about goodness? Uh, Second, what do we learn about ourselves? And third, what do we learn from Jesus? So first, what do we learn about goodness from Mark 10? Well, who, we have to ask, okay, who is this ruler? Um, Matthew tells us that he's young. Uh, Luke tells us that he's a ruler. And we later find out that this man's pretty wealthy here from Mark. So hence you get the rich young ruler um, as his title. Uh, The word for ruler that Luke uses in his gospel um, indicates that he's a leader in the synagogue. Um, He's a ruler in the local synagogue. This ruler is an upright, decent young man. He's really the kind of guy that you would just really want to be friends with. Uh, he's the kind of guy that you would want to have working for you or working with you to be on your team. He's the one that you would want to have as your brother or your son or to have your, your um, sisters and your, your daughters date and marry. That's who this guy is. He's just an overall decent guy. And then in verse 17, he runs to Jesus. He falls on his knees before him. And he sincerely asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as he often does, responds with a question of his own. He's trying to understand who this is that's before him. Who is this that he's talking to? And he's wanting this young man to be a little bit more introspective. And so he goes on and he says, Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? And then Jesus explains why he's asking this question No one, no one is good except God alone the ruler in this passage he's not trying to flatter jesus he really does respect him and value him that's why he throws himself at his feet he runs to him he shows great humility in going before him and falling on his knees but jesus is implicitly asking him what does it mean if you call me good if only god is good and you're calling me good what is that what does that mean but also what does it mean to just call someone good in general um, if, if someone called you or I good, we would be probably pretty encouraged and just take that um, compliment and enjoy the affirmation that we receive from them. But Jewish people in this day and age in which Jesus is living, they only refer to God in this way and never, ever referred to each other in this way. So Jesus is pressing this young man. He's pressing us to think, what is true goodness? Then Jesus goes further. And he summarizes the, the back half of the Ten Commandments, the part about loving your neighbor, whereas the first part is about loving God. He says, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus is trying to get the young man to think about his failure to keep the commandments. He really might be a decent young man, but, and he might be a good man, but he's not as good as God. And the man replies in verse 21, shockingly, all these I've kept from my youth. He's basically saying, I'm good. I've done that. What else you got for me, Jesus? I've done those things you've said. The young man is not aware at all of the distance between him and the God of the universe. He's not aware of the distance between his goodness and God's goodness. He's not aware that he doesn't get the law at all, that even though he's a leader in the synagogue, he doesn't get it at all. So this young man he thinks his goodness has been really enough to get him in to God's good graces. It's enough to get him into God's favor, you know, and if we're honest, this is how often, very often, you and I um, think about Christianity. We think Christianity is about, um, if we're good, If we do our best to not break the major commandments, if we do more good than bad, uh, then we're in. God has to let us in. If we think, you know, I'm not as bad as those people over there. Like, I I don't struggle like them. I don't do those things. Then we're good with God. After all, we've been really, really sincere in all of our efforts and all of our trying. You know, it's our tendency, our knee-jerk, broken tendency to make Christianity about following a list of rules. Do this, don't do that. Be good, don't be bad. Um, look good on the outside. It doesn't really matter what's going on in your heart, but make sure everyone around you knows that you're, that you're being good with very little concern about what's going on inside of your heart. And for those outside of the church, we've struggled mightily to portray to them what Jesus is really about you know, a lot of people outside of the church, they really think that's what Christianity is about too, about being more good than bad, about having your life in order, and having the externals match up, and it doesn't really matter what's going on. But the law, originally intended, given by God and Jesus, they're really after our hearts. They're really after what's going on inside of us. It's not about the externals. It's not about looking good on the outside. It's about the purity of your heart. So the law is not just about not murdering. It's about not hating people. It's about not thinking or speaking ill of them. It's about loving them. That adultery isn't just about not having sex outside of marriage. It's about not lusting after someone in your heart or with your eyes. It's about not objectifying them. It's about loving them. And then Theft. It's not just about taking something that doesn't belong to you. It's about not coveting anything that's not yours, whether it's someone else's house or their job or their children or their spouse or their salary or their vacations or their grades or their boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever. Bearing false witness is not just about not lying in court. It's about telling the truth all the time and doing so in love. Honoring your parents is about treating them with respect, even if they don't deserve it. It's about loving and caring for them, serving them, and supporting them. So, this morning, what would you have said if Jesus asked you this question? The reality is, is none of us in this room can say that we've obeyed the full measure of the law. Goodness, what we've seen, it goes much deeper It's about being completely pure in heart and completely pure in action. And only God is good in this sense. This young man's limited understanding of who God is and what goodness really means is keeping him from having a right relationship with God. This young man doesn't see his true state. He doesn't see that he's broken. He doesn't see that he's in desperate need of a Savior. He doesn't see that he's in desperate need of forgiveness and a new heart. His biggest problem is that he's broken the first commandment. Yeah, maybe he's kept the back half, but he's broken the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. His biggest problem is misplaced worship and idolatry. He misses the point about how good God is, and he replies, no, I'm, I'm good. This morning, if Jesus asks you this question... How would you reply? Would you reply like the young man? Yeah, I've done all that since I was a kid. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm not a liar. I don't sleep around. I don't cheat on my taxes. I have the catechisms memorized. I study my Bible a lot. I pray a lot. I don't hang out with those people. I'm good. Or would you think this? Wow, I realize that the law goes much much deeper than I ever imagined. And not a day, not a minute goes by where I can keep it at all. Do we see our poverty of goodness when compared with the beauty and the purity of who our God is and what he commands us to in his law? Or do we think we're good too? So second, what do we learn about ourselves here? After the young man replies, teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus doesn't reply to this young man, have you read your Old Testament? You know, there's no one who's good, not even one. In fact, your righteousness is like filthy rags before me. Have you been listening to my teaching at all, young man? You are a sinner. You need to repent. You are not good. You need forgiveness. Is that how Jesus replies to this young man? Now, all this is true, but Jesus doesn't go after him directly. He doesn't grab him by his robes and shake him and say, you know, you are proud and arrogant. How dare you call yourself good before me? You know, he doesn't jump to calling this man out on his sin, on his idolatry. He doesn't expose him. He doesn't shame him. Jesus doesn't think that the louder you scream at someone about their sin, the more direct and pointed you are, the more convicted that person is going to be of their sin. He doesn't use the Bible as a weapon against him. He knows, Jesus, the God of the universe who created everything, knows that no one has ever been shamed into him. He knows that shame and criticism, which is aimed at tearing down and harming, do not work as good motivators to enter into gospel relationship with him. Jesus is more gentle in his approach. He's trying to get this young man, he's trying to get us to understand our own hearts. Verse 21 tells us what Jesus does. He looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. You know, If I'm honest with you, the hardest people for me to love um, and be gracious with are proud and arrogant people who think that they're better than those around them. Um, People who don't see their need for forgiveness, don't see their need for a Savior, and look down on everyone around them and think really, really highly of themselves. Jesus confronts me here, and he convicts me, because Jesus does not treat them the way that I want to treat them. You know, what does Jesus do with this man who's proud and arrogant and thinks he's perfectly kept God's law? He loves him. He's not repulsed. He doesn't shrink away. He's not harsh. He's not dismissive of him. He doesn't say, you're beyond hope. You're not worth my time. You're disgusting. No, Jesus loves him and so when we, when we come to Jesus, when we see our need and we come to him in faith and in repentance, recognizing our sin and our brokenness, our inability to achieve God's love on our own, he welcomes us. He fills us with his spirit, and that should lead us to mirror the way that Jesus treats people, even proud, even arrogant, selfish people. Then Jesus continues in verse 21. One thing you still lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the young man heard these things, his face fell. He became very sad for he had great wealth." Now hear me this morning. Jesus is not saying if you have money, if you are wealthy, the way that you get into heaven, the way that you get God to love you is by giving all your money away to the poor. That's not what Jesus is saying this morning. Jesus has not gotten this young man to see into his heart yet. He hasn't gotten him to see his broken state and his need for grace yet. And so he's trying a different approach with him. He doesn't say explicitly, have you read your first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. But that's exactly what Jesus is getting at when he's trying to expose and challenge the man on where his heart truly lies. He says, you think you are good. Where's your heart? What do you truly love? What do you truly worship? What guides and directs your choices? Is it the Lord or is it money? Is it something else? What do you live for? Who do you love? One of my favorite movies is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and at the end of the movie, um, after Ferris and his best friend Cameron and Ferris's girlfriend have spent the whole day ditching school, driving around Chicago, going to Cubs games, uh, going to arcades, they've been um, they've been driving around in Cameron's dad's '61 Ferrari Spider all day, and so they get home. They're trying to take the miles off the car. They have it jacked up, and they're trying to reverse it. You can tell that they're high school kids and they're idiots um, because things don't work that way. But they have the car jacked up. They're trying to run it in reverse. They're trying to get the miles off of it, and then something snaps in Cameron. Cameron looks at the car, and he starts kicking at the bumper, and he starts screaming, Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? You love a car. He's fed up with his relationship with his father. He's fed up with this thing that's standing in the middle of his relationship with his dad and his dad's relationship with his family because this car has become the end-all, be-all for his dad, and it's the one thing that is driving a wedge between their relationship. So he screams, who do you love? Who do you love? You love a car, and then he keeps kicking it, and then finally you see the, the, the jack-buckle and the jack falls off, the car shoots in reverse, it shoots out of this like two-story window into the woods, and the car is completely destroyed. So the question for us is, who do you love? What do you love? Jesus is trying to show the young man in this passage, you do not only not love your neighbor well, you don't love God with your whole heart. You don't love God with your whole strength and all of your mind. If, it, if we're honest... If you and I are honest this morning, the same thing is true of us. You know, what do, what do you really want? Where are you storing up treasures? Are they on earth here or are they in heaven? Are your choices driven by love for God or trying? is it by trying to get more stuff? Is it by trying to get more comfortable, more safe, more security, more happiness, more pleasure, more fulfillment? The reality is, is every one of us worship God Something We all put something in the place of God, and the Bible calls that idolatry. Augustine says it this way. He says, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything that ought to be worshiped. It's exactly what the young man is doing here in our text. He's worshiping his wealth. He's trying to use God to get what he thinks he wants. So where do we do that? Where do you and I do that? Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories, that they're constantly worshiping something other than God. So how can you tell if something is your idol? One of the the rubrics for it is, one of the ways to think about it is, what really gets you really angry? What gets you really afraid? What makes you really sad? You know, what are you willing to fight for if it gets threatened? What are you willing to grasp onto so tightly if you feel it slipping away through your fingers? For some of us, it's our kids. Uh, For some of us, it's our jobs or our grades or our status with a certain group of people or a certain industry. For some of us, it's a relationship. For some of us, it's pleasure or power or authority or control or even our reputation, Remember, uh, Keller says it this way, you know, idols don't have to be bad things in and of themselves. They're often good things, but they're good things that we turn into ultimate things, things that we have to have in order to feel safe, in order to feel secure, in order to feel worthy, in order to feel significant and whole. You know, for many of us, our hearts are filled with idols that are keeping us from following God wholly and wholeheartedly, and we need Jesus to step in and open our eyes to them and have them ripped away from us. You know, Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off shows us that in order for him to have a right relationship with his father, this idol of the 61 Ferrari spider has to be destroyed. Now, this is where the illustration breaks down. God is not the one with the idol problem. We are, but if we are to truly love and honor and serve and follow after God, our idols have to be destroyed. Someone once said this, until your idols are destroyed, there is no room for Jesus in your heart. So we see here, we are all without Jesus lost and capable of following the law, primarily because we place our importance, we place our our self-worth, our value, our hope, our significance, our ultimate identities on something other than God. And we are, every one of us, in need of grace and forgiveness. So what do we learn from Jesus here? The first thing we learn from Jesus in this passage, uh, especially in dealing with broken people around us, uh, especially with those who think that they're good, um, is that Jesus earns the right to ask challenging, penetrating questions the moral beauty of Jesus' life and his reputation, they drive this man to come throw himself at his feet with respect and with a willingness and a humility to learn. And Jesus doesn't betray that reputation with him. He doesn't scold him. He's gentle, he's humble, he's gracious, and he enters into this man's life. He doesn't scream at him and shout at him, You should know better. Here's how awful you really are. Jesus doesn't shame this man. He doesn't bully him with the truth. We, you and I, cannot just jump on people and shout loudly at them. You're a sinner. You are in need of forgiveness. You need to repent. You're broken to your very core without first having their love and their respect. We have to earn the right to offer affirming critiques which are motivated not by tearing them down and feeling better but by restoring and building them up in the gospel without being critical without taking the judgment seat which is not ours to take we have to love the people around us the way that Jesus has loved us the way that Jesus loves them only then when when fam- will family members will coworkers will friends will neighbors will our kids know that they're loved and they're valued and they're safe with us when they come to us with their questions, when they know that they are loved and significant by us. And then when they come to us with their questions, then we have to be careful to ask them good questions, what we learn from Jesus here. We also see that Jesus, he tries to get people to see the beauty and the character of God here. When we see God for who he really is, we're more likely to see that we drastically fall short If you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, you see Isaiah is confronted in the throne room of God. And what does he say? He says, woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. When we show God's beauty and the goodness of his character and his law and the ugliness of sin, that is more effective than launching accusations and condemning people for their sin conviction has to arise from within the person only with the aid of the Holy Spirit. And I have news for you is that none of us are the Holy Spirit. It's not our jobs to go around convicting people all day, every day. It's our job to look at them and to love them and to show them the beauty and the grace of our God. And then in verse 27, Jesus says this, with man, this is impossible, but not with God all things are possible with God. We need him to help us see our brokenness and our need. We're never going to be able to do it on our own. We need Jesus and his Holy Spirit to help us see how awesome and how wonderful and how gracious and how beautiful he is and fall down in worship and giving ourselves away to him because of it. So part of our calling and engaging a broken world around us that's filled with broken people is to demonstrate, to live out, to show with every part of our being the beauty and the goodness and the grace of following Jesus, reflecting his holiness as a broken mirror, his love, his grace, his patience, his words, his demeanor, his posture towards people. We also see that there's no lost causes in our world. We don't get to write anyone off as beyond hope. We don't get to write them off, especially proud and arrogant people because Jesus doesn't write them off. The Holy Spirit can move and he can work in the most broken in the most proud and the most arrogant of lives. After all, look at who's in this room this morning. You and I are here and Jesus has been gracious and shown his grace and his mercy and he has loved us and pursued us. That's evidence enough that that is what we need to be, that's what we need to be following. We also learn from Jesus that he's concerned about the hearts of those around them. He does desire most of all that we love him, we love God and we love our neighbor. But he wants us to love and to serve because we love him. Jesus isn't dismissive of this man because of his bad theology. He's not dismissive of him because of his self-righteousness or his arrogance. But Jesus' words about it being easier for a camel to go through the the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, they sting. They sting the disciples and they sting us this morning because our idols, they get in the way of following Jesus. And this is ultimately what Jesus says to the man. Give your money away to the poor and then come and follow me. Get rid of the things that are keeping you from me and come after me. Do we really believe that only God can set us free from our idols? Or do we try to manage them for ourselves? Or even worse, do we try to manage them for those around us? Jesus Begins to set us free from our idols by helping us see into our own hearts. He really does care for this man. He really does care for you this morning. He wants you to get to know him. He's deeply interested in you, and he's willing to count the the cost of what it will mean for this young man and for you to enter into relationship with him if we're to love, if we're to engage the broken world around us, we have to be willing to do the same thing that Jesus is doing here. What we see is that Jesus is ready. He's ready to give his life for this young man. He's ready to give his life for you which he ultimately does on the cross when he becomes our sin for us, where he takes all of our idols on himself, where he takes all of our lack of goodness and our failures and our brokenness and our sin on himself, and then he dies and he rises again. And in that transaction, when we come to him in faith, he gives us all of his love. He gives us all of his righteousness. He gives us all of his goodness now so that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus He's not disappointed. He's not upset. He's not waiting for you. When are you going to get your act together? He's sitting there, and when he looks at you if you're his, he smiles. Zephaniah 3.17 says he sings. He bursts into song because he loves you so much he can't help it. So when we see that Jesus was ready to give his life for this young man and for us, We see that we get all of his goodness, all of his perfection, and we get the status, as Ephesians tells us, as his dearly loved children. We are children of the King, and all of this happens while we're still sinners, while we're still lost and broken, while we're still proud and arrogant. He gives himself fully to and for those who came to him, and he invites us this morning to mirror him, to live out of his character, and to show his love to the world around us. We're called to draw near, not to be repelled by broken people, not to be repelled by sinful and prideful and arrogant people, but to love them, to give ourselves a a way to them and for them that they might come to know and love and serve this Jesus with us. So when we come into contact with Jesus as he's he's presented to us in the scriptures, what we see is we really don't have it all together. That we fail in every part of keeping God's law. That we're prone, as we sang earlier, we're prone to wander. We're prone to put other things in the place of God. That our hearts really are idle factories. Our choices and our lives, if we're honest, are not often guided by, what does God really want for me? but rather, you know, how can I get more of this? How can I get more of what I want? Whether it's pleasure or a feeling or a relationship or money or whatever it is. And what we see is that Jesus deals gently with us. That he's interested in moving towards our hearts and getting them to open up to ourselves so that we can in turn open ourselves up to him and chase after and follow him with everything that we have. The one who looks at us with love, with grace, he paid for our brokenness, he paid for our idols on the cross so that we don't have to keep trying to make it up to him with our goodness, so that we can be free to worship and to follow him and him alone, so that he can truly be the love that is at the center of our hearts and our lives and our actions. This morning, is your goodness keeping you from enjoying the freedom and the forgiveness of the gospel? You and I, we were made to have God at the center of our lives and our hearts. Everything else is gonna leave you anxious, discouraged, depressed, restless, and, and hopeless. Jesus alone offers life. He offers hope and he offers rest and he offers you himself. So what do you truly love this morning? As we close, I want you to hear this. Jesus truly loves and desires and cherishes you most. And the reason we know that is because he died on the cross for us, because he rose again, because he promises he's going to return and take you home to be with him forever. That's how we know that. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your love, for your goodness. We thank you that you do not run away from us in our sin, that you do not um, dismiss us, that you don't just reject us outright, even though you have every reason to. We thank you that you draw near, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Help us to lay hold of that this morning. Help us to see our poverty of goodness, to look at your goodness and your love and your mercy and your grace and to bask in it to allow it to pour over and sweep over our lives that we might in turn give ourselves away to you and follow you and love you and do what you call us to do in loving you and our neighbor with our whole heart and soul and strength and mind. Meet with us and transform us here as we come to your table this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.